Hey everyone, before we start the show, sadly we have another in memoriam we need to give for another creator that has passed away at a far too young age. Hirocho Wada passed away at the age of 46 on July 18th due to a cerebral hemorrhage and other contributing factors. And it's just sad to see a creator pass away just that young. I mean, that is so young. And to pass away due to health complications, it really is tragic. Wada is best known for their Stitch and the Samurai series that's currently being released in English by Tokyopop. And they've done other series as well, including Farao, a comedy about an Egyptian pharaoh. They seem like a very interesting creator, and I definitely had a lot of curiosity about Stitch and Samurai. I was really good to check it out. I'm really sad to hear, though, that the creator passed away, and again, just far, far too young. I mean, after just launching a new series earlier this year, and the first volume had just coming out a few days before its passing, it really is tragic. But I just wanted to offer my condolences to his family and his loved ones, and a moment of silence for his passing. This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 169. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lama Ramayasha, and today we are doing a roundup of all the latest new series and one-shots that have come out in the past month or so. Not just all the stuff out on Jump, but we're also going to be starting off the show with a review of the new Isaki Uta one-shot published by Iridori Comics, Silk Screen. And I think we are excited to talk about these different series, because there are some things to talk about them. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely really excited to talk about this new batch of simul pubs and one-shots and whatnot, because I think there's going to be a lot to talk about with some of these but actually, before we even get onto those, uh, just a little something at the top of the show that uh, I didn't get to talk about last episode, because I, I think we recorded that before I made an appearance, but, and I've, I've been intentionally keeping this under wraps, basically until I was actually on it, but, uh, so in case anybody hasn't been following us on social media, probably might not know, but uh, uh, I was a guest panelist on the Best and Worst Manga of 2021 uh, a panel usually led by uh, Deb Aoki for uh, San Diego Comic-Con, which for some reason got rejected this year. Um, so she basically did the panel for uh, for Comic Beat. And uh, yeah, it was a very fun panel. I got to be on and uh, basically got to talk about my picks for the best and worst manga, of which I won't go over here, obviously. If you want to know my picks, uh, you'll have to go watch it on YouTube, which is, I, I believe at this point, still archived. We'll obviously, you know, link that in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. But yeah, it was it was fun. 
my my only regret is that because uh, admittedly I haven't seen a lot of um, the past years like panels, so I wasn't entirely familiar with like the structure. So I feel like I did a I, I feel like I did a bad job with my first pick because I wasn't used to the uh, format. But I, I think I got a little better as I went on. But still, it was it was fun though. Uh, for those curious, the other panelists involved were uh, Bridget Alverson from uh, ICV two. Uh, Jillian Ellers and Rachel Lapidow. Shout out to them. They were really great. I really like talking with them. And uh, yeah, I just enjoyed being on the panel. And I hope uh, I hope if you weren't able to catch the panel live again, you can catch it on YouTube. It's been archived. Again, we'll leave a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. And yeah, just if you're interested in my picks and you and you don't already know me at this point and you're, it's not totally obvious what my some of my picks are, go check it out. And also check out like everybody else's picks too. I uh, I need to go back and like kind of put whatever they picked on my list because some, some of them were actually really interesting. I need to check them out. It was a great panel. Great to see you a part of it. You guys picked some really good choices and had like, some good discussion on what makes a series worth recommending and in the case of the worst manga why uh, you should stay away from them and it was fun to keep up with the youtube chat on when it was live and i know that uh most of our friend group was over in the discord also watching counting live and they definitely were like wow these picks are the most colton core <laughs> choices out there and it was a lot of fun a lot of fun to see and it was really cool to see you a part of the panel this year no, yeah, I mean, just to be honest, I mean, like, Deb just kind of messaged me out of the blue and was like, hey, you want to be a part of this? And I was like, oh, D- Deb Aoki wants me to be a part of uh, of, of a panel, like, pr- pr- probably one of the most influential voices in, like, uh, manga criticism and and whatever, like, it's just, I still can't believe she asked me, like, it was a huge honor and I really enjoyed talking with Deb, and yeah, it was just it was fun. Like I'm still I'm still kind of speechless that I was even like a part of it at all. Honestly, my my imposter syndrome is kind of setting in a little bit. I'll be honest. No, you did fine. You were totally natural. Oh, well, well, thank you. I was also like I'm not usually like a big fan of on camera stuff, which is why I mostly stick to podcasts. So I'm not usually used to being on camera, but I think I think I did pretty well. You know, or yeah, I I, I didn't do as bad as I thought I would. But uh, yeah, again, please go check it out if you're at all interested in any of my totally not obvious picks or everyone else's picks. And yeah, just just go check it out. It was a lot of fun. But uh, I just wanted to promote that at the top of the show. And now I think we can get on to all the simulpubs we have to talk about. But I guess the first thing we're talking about is not really a simulpub. But I think first we should start off with Silkscreen by Isaki Uta. That was just put out by uh, Iridori Comics. Um, Lam, if you want to go ahead and take it away. Yes, this is another short story by Sakura that is exploring kind of queer identity experience similar to Mine Kunis Exsexual. Interestingly, I don't believe the principal characters in this are ever named. So it's kind of hard to talk about them. It, it just to refer to them because I don't think they have names, but the protagonist is essentially a lesbian girl who in high school is like very attracted to kind of this handsome looking who she perceives as a woman. And she very is clearly, you know, in love with this idea of the princely woman archetype. She sees in this person 
shades of Oscar from the Rosarist Size, the Princess Sapphire from Princess Knight, Joan of Arc. She lists basically a bunch of different people that she perceives as like, hey, this ideal of the Prince of the Archetype. And she wants to kind of be rescued from kind of the humdrumness of her life by that kind of person. And she sees in this person she falls in love with in high school and she draws all the time. She sees in them that. And there kind of is in this story, though, this idea of you are projecting onto other people like what you want them to be. And so it kind of comes to a point like later we flash forward to present day and we see that this girl, our protagonist, you know, who used to just love drawing, has now kind of ended up becoming... You know, as a self-trainer, like she works in printing now, like apparel printing. And so, you know, her life has kind of gone in a direction she's not super happy with because, you know, she's doing this career she's not super passionate about. She basically has cut all ties with her parents. And she has been having a long-term relationship, but it's kind of on the rocks right now because she feels insecure about, you know, her girlfriend, like, going out and spending time with lesbian bars all the time, and then she feels very lonely. So she kind of feels like she's in a rut and not in a good place. But when she goes out to dinner, she meets that person she used to idolize back in high school, and he has transitioned into being a trans man. After, as we reveal, he had come out to her back in high school. However, she took it really badly because she was so stuck on this idea of them being a princely woman archetype that would rescue her from her life. So she reacted really, really badly to that. But he approaches her now in the present and they kind of start having a conversation of, where their life has been, how they've gone. And she kind of confesses to him that, you know, she feels like she gave up on drawing because her world came into focus. Because she used to see this world from behind a veil, like behind kind of this illusion of like what she wanted to see. Like she wasn't seeing things clearly. And now that she can't see things clearly, she can't really imagine in her art, like, the fantasies that she used to have and that she used to dream of. But over the conversation, and, like, this being kind of mirrored with the flashbacks of, like, her former partner, like, coming out to her, and then their fallout and breakout from that, like, in the present, he is basically, like, encouraging her that she can go where she like, become whatever she wants to be. And if she wants to draw again, she can and should do that. You know, she should do what she's passionate about. And she, he, like, also importantly, he tells her that even if the way things ended between them was rough, like, even if, like, in the pastor's conversation where he was upset at her for, like, you know, projecting her idea of him onto him, and so it was considering, hey, you in the past he was saying, what you're feeling with me is in love. You're not, you don't really love me for me and stuff like that. In the present, he's saying to her, you know, I did really love you. At least they did, or at least like the past versions of myself did. And so that kind of gives her an epiphany of like, you know, this relationship I had in the past, it isn't. Even though, like, we weren't really seeing each other for ourselves, that doesn't mean that 
the love we had for each other or relationship was fake and it was meaningful to us. And so that kind of gives her a new perspective. And then in a conversation she has with her girlfriend, she, you know, her girl, like, she wants to apologize for, like, kind of being a little needy to her before. And so her girlfriend proposes, hey, you know, you say you used to draw a portrait. And so the story ends on the note of her thinking she's going to draw a sketchbook. And an encouraging note of her, like, I'm going to pick up art again. I'm going to pick up what I'm going to be passionate about. I'm going to allow myself to return to the world of the imaginary, to these dreams, to these feelings that I used to have. Because even if they aren't real, quote-unquote, in the sense that I am seeing like the world for how it really is, there's still value in seeing what in the world what I want to see and what I love. So I appreciate the message of this. I mean, I, again, I think it's really cool... I like seeing authors explore different sides of gender and sexuality. So I really like what they do with the trans male character in the series and the conversations they have uh, in terms of like this very precarious attempt by him to come out to her and her reaction. Like I felt like really rough, but also very real. And I like seeing the relationship between these characters and like this character's struggle of like her you know kind of not uh, having trouble like being disillusioned with the world as it is and disillusioned with like her passions what she uh, and pursuing what she really loves and not really being sure of like what she wants to life. I do like seeing how in this relationship and reflecting upon and meeting up with her former partner again, she's able to get that new perspective to move forward in life and to resume, rekindle that passion, that love for things she used to have. So I like that message. And uh, in the afterward, Asaki Uta calls this York. I wouldn't quite say it is because, I mean... With one of the characters being trans male, it feels kind of not super right to call this series because it's not between two women. But I do think it's a great LGBTQIA story about these two characters. And it's kind of interesting, just like this and many kind of sexually, it always, like, it seems like twice now, Asaki has kind of told this story of kind of a ill-fated relationship between two people and one of the people the partner is a queer person i mean in this case the protagonist is also lesbian however she's a cis woman whereas her old partner is a trans male and so it's kind of this idea of like the respective character is kind of quote unquote kind of seeing the other uh, person seeing this queer person she has a relationship with you know kind of from a distance and then kind of is projecting their feeling of him but we uh, we do i think get a good sense of that character in both minikun and in silkscreen from that perspective but i do think it's an interesting thing that isaku that chooses to write these stories that way and has kind of written two stories on about ill-fated relationships uh between a kind of cis person and a queer person and then i i think it's uh, gonna be interesting i it seems that isaku is really interested in exploring queer identity i would like to see like a story from the perspective of the queer character next well like i mean of the the focal queer character next i guess 
in this case, yes, the protagonist is lesbian. But like, I would like to see the story next time from the non-binary or the trans character. But uh, I do think it's interesting how they're exploring these ideas of gender and sexuality in, the, in these stories in this way. And I think it is a very compelling story. I think it does touch upon some really nice, powerful themes. I think Uta's arc is very striking with the metaphor of the veil, with a lot of the imagery that they draw in this. So, yeah, I think it's a really strong one shot. I'm a big fan of Uta's works from all of them that we've read so far. And I think even though that they they claim in the afterworld that this was kind of something they drew in a rush and without editing, I think it gave out really well. I think especially with the barren landscapes at the beginning and end, especially with the visual of like her tearing apart like this veil, like just shattering behind her. She's like ripping apart and distraught after her old relationship ends. Like they draw some just really stunning visuals and to complement that with really compelling stories. I was going to say, if this is a rush job, I, I'd love to see what they uh, what they could do like when they have more time on their hands, I guess, because holy shit. Yeah, some of this looked really beautiful. And I mean, um, I don't know if I really have much else to add to what you said. I think you put it pretty well. I mean, I think I'm in agreement. Like, I really like these stories that uh, Isaki Uta has been doing lately where you know, uh, they are kind of about these relationships where, like, the couple isn't really, like, compatible with each other, and they kind of, like, explore that why, whether it's through, like, how they identify or what their orientation is, or both, maybe. Um, it's just really interesting to have these stories that kind of, like, unpack that and kind of, like, explore that in particular. I also agree that, like, I think it would be really interesting if they did do a story like this, but through the eyes of, like, like you said, the focal character. Like, for instance, it, it'd be really cool if we had another story like Mina Kun is asexual, but, like, maybe from the point of view of that character, you know? Yeah, the character who isn't cis is yeah. the perspective next time. That's something I see. Because, like, in both Mina Kun and in this, it is the cis character who is the perspective character. But then I, I would like to see the trans or non-binding character as the focal character, the character who we are seeing their interior thoughts uh, more of next time. But I am really appreciative and I, I do like the way that they explore identity in both these one shots. And I am very, I, I'm very curious to see like how they will continue to do that in their future works. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, again, despite that, like Isaki Uta always puts out like really good stuff regardless. So, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, if anybody wants to check this out, I mean, you should definitely go check it out from, uh, from Iridori. I'm sure we'll put links in the show notes as to like, where you could purchase this and read this, but like, yeah, I, I definitely say if you if you already like Isaki Uta's works, like you should definitely go check this out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, another hearty recommendation. Like I, I Isaki Uta is becoming like one of the most interesting, one of my most favorite creators to follow their works, and I really am excited for their next work when it gets put out. Mm-hmm. But I think with that. Uh, we can move on to uh, the two newest jump starts that have come out. And yeah, I think the first one we should talk about is the Hunter's Guild Red Hood from Yuki Kawaguchi. Lum, if you want to tell our listeners what that series is about. This takes place in a fantasy world in which, you know, local village communities are preyed upon by werewolves, which are, you know, just werewolves. Like they're man-eating creatures that, you know, usually come out at night 
or whatever and they hunt down people eat them and then of course like people can become werewolves so most of the werewolves are former people essentially in this story like uh, in one hand like Hasoka village that's where the story starts you know a werewolf has been preying upon the villagers and so the mayor of the village calls upon a hunter from the hunter's guilds who are renowned for you know, mercenaries who specialize in hunting monsters, but they don't have a great reputation because, you know, people say they're very greedy and whatnot. But they send this girl, or who appears to be a girl, named Grim. And at first, obviously, the villagers are a little hesitant to trust her, especially because, you know, she says, oh, we're not really heroic or whatnot. And I, she asks for money up front and stuff. So... People aren't super trusting of her at first. But, you know, she takes the job. And then a boy in the village who is our, like, main protagonist, Velu. Like, he is the most trustful her. So he, like, kind of follows her to just make this check if she is, like, doing the job and stuff. And so, you know, she kind of is assessed that the werewolf that's preying on the village has been hiding in the village. Because werewolves can conform between human and werewolf form. And they find, like... They hear a scream coming from the mayor's hut, so they go there, and then they find that the mayor has been murdered. And then, quickly after, it becomes clear that the mayor's wife was the werewolf all along, and so they fight and defeat her. And then after that, you know, because of Velu's kind of moxie tenacity in helping beat the werewolf, like, Grim kind of proposes to him, hey, you should join the Hunter's Guild. And he's like, no, like, especially with the Maragon, I got to protect my Hamlet. And then she's like, okay, fine. Uh, if we get rid of the other werewolves in the adjacent forest uh, that will come and attack the village, then maybe you can come with me or you'll change your mind or whatever. So then, like, there are two other werewolves that were working with the mayor's wife werewolf. And so they do attack the village. But because, you know, Velo has been living in the village all his life, you know, he knows all the people living there. He's able to suss out one of them while Grimm is able to lure and fight the other one. And so they fight and beat these guys. And then at the end of the, like, most recent chapter of the time of this recording, like, it seems like, hey, we've saved our village. Hooray. Everyone survived. And then a giant werewolf and a witch comes and it looks like uh, maybe everyone won't survive. We'll see what happens. But Oh, man. Yeah. That's basically the story so far with this series. Yeah. So um, I I thought this was good. I enjoyed it. I, I will admit that... I mean, first off, the, the art for this is amazing. Yeah, I think if there's one thing you can say is that Kawaguchi's art is really phenomenal. Not just, like, their character designs, but also just their paneling. Like, there are some really great sequences in this, and that accentuates the action so well. But their designs are also great. Like, the werewolf designs are so creepy. Oh so my god, yeah. <laughs> weird, the way that their bodies can contort and twist, and they have, like, their mouth split apart in like three at least ways most of them oh, like man. they look very creepy otherworldly and I, I really appreciate it. i really appreciate that unconventional choice to portray these werewolves as truly like eldritch abomination type things it's kind of like if the werewolves were also like 
uh, parasites from Parasite the Maxim, almost. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I think also I th- there's a reason that uh, Grimm's design has been, there's been a lot of fan art of it. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, they're a good character designer. Oh, yeah. I think the designs in the series are quite memorable. I think the aesthetic of the series, the look of the villages and the forest, uh, even the weaponry, like it all looks like kind of like the Grimm's fairytale inspiration is very obvious in this, but I think Gawuji really is able to make that aesthetic his own in their style. So I appreciate that a lot. Artistically, I think the series is very strong. Where it may fall short and where it does fall short for me is in the storytelling themselves, or at least in the... Because we've mentioned this before, but I feel like a really important thing for a lot of series is to have that sense of what the protagonist really wants and like their desperation and drive to protect or to achieve whatever goal they have or whatever protect whatever thing they love that they cherish the most. And in this case, like it's clear that Welu's goal is like what Welu loves is this village and he wants to protect this village. But like I don't feel like they draw the point strong enough. Like even with the mayor's debt, I don't feel the devastation in Velo enough in like processing the mayor has died because the action just comes too quickly. Yeah. So I think it kind of missed a great opportunity to have that emotional beat, to have like that real moment of drive for Well to work up the courage to take on this werewolf on his own when it looks like Grimm has been devoured by it and he's the only one left. Like you have a flashback thing or whatever, but it could be much stronger. Then it was portrayed. And then uh, that also extends into the subsequent chapters when it's dealing with the conflict with the other two werewolves. Like, we have this moment where, okay, Lelou gets really upset because one of the werewolves, like, kills the other and whatnot. And he's like, hey, that was that guy's friend and whatnot. But that feels pretty typical, like, kind of shown in, oh, the villains don't value their friends and that makes me upset kind of thing. Yeah. And that's fine, but, like, especially with the situation and the context of, hey, these werewolves are going to, like, you know, eat these people. And, like, yes, they draw the point of, hey, these werewolves, they used to be human. But considering the idea behind the series is that we're not going to find a way to cure people where werewolf uh, transformations and... Like, we're going to just get rid of the werewolf problem by hunting them down. Like, Grimm says, hey, we exterminate all these creatures until they're nothing but fairy tales. Like, they've done this with dragons, now they're doing werewolves, witches, and vampires. And so, it's like, well, okay. So, unless you really go in on, like, the tragedy that led these people to become werewolves in the same way Demon Slayer did with the demons. I mean, bringing up the point that these werewolves used to be human, you're not really making as powerful a point in that in this circumstance because I, I don't really feel we see the feel the tragedy of like that utter werewolf getting betrayed and murdered by his compatriot in the same way that we're meant to in the same extent uh that Velu is feeling that upset so yeah I think that missed the mark for me and then I you know I, again, we talked about that uh, kind of cliffhanger at the end of the fourth chapter. And at the time of this recording, the next chapter has come out. But I, I feel it's like a pretty much a given that what's going to make Velo go on this journey is that the entire village is going to get destroyed by this giant werewolf and the witch and whatever. And so it's going to be like a revenge story for Velo of like, I'm going to become a hunter so I can hunt these two down and get 
avenge my village or whatever, or prevent other villages from suffering a similar fate. So we'll see how well it does that. But if that is like the driving force of the story, if that is what's going to motivate Velo to go on the journey, maybe that should have come in in chapter one. Maybe. Because, you know, it's taken a while to get to that big, desperate, big point of despair that like is going to motivate the protagonist to go forward. And it's going to be like the most compelling point to see like the protagonist on his journey. Like, cause in the first chapter, you know, again, like Velu wants to protect his village and that's fine. But he, as brought up in the second chapter, he has no reason to go along with Grimm. So it's taking a while to get to the point where it's like, okay, now I have a drive. I have real motivation to go out to the world on this journey. As a hunter. So, yeah, structurally, in terms of the plotting, I think it's a little slow, and I think it is missing its mark on some of these uh, emotional beats that, you know, it could have done a little more powerfully. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. Like, I don't think this is, like, as, as far as the story goes, I don't think it's perfect. And honestly, when I was reading the first chapter, I wasn't really sure how I felt about it at first, because, like, I, I kind of feel like I saw the twist kind of coming. Like, when we were kind of making our journey to them a little bit, and I, I got, like, halfway through, I was like, oh, the werewolf's going to be the mayor, right? And at first you think that, and then I was like, oh, wait, the werewolf's going to be, like, his wife, and then that's how it turned out. And, yeah, I, I kind of saw those twists coming a little bit, and at one point I was kind of like, well, I don't know how I feel about this, like, I hope this doesn't, like, I hope it's not, like, this rote, you know, the whole way through, you know? And, I don't know, we'll, we'll see how long it lasts, or whatever, but... I mean, and, and we'll, we'll probably get to this when we get to Nehru, but mm-hmm. I feel like out of the two, this has the stronger chance of lasting longer, probably. But again, we'll see. Um, yeah. Uh, on, honestly, just on, the, like I said, just on the art alone, like, I feel like, I feel like this is going to be a Phantom Seer thing. And, and not to say that, like, you know, the art in Phantom Seer was, like, the only good thing about that series. But, like, you know, I, I feel like this is a similar situation where, like, the story's okay, or at the very least, it's, like, serviceable, but, like, I think the art alone is is what's going to, like, keep me coming back to this. Yeah. It's going to be the thing that I like about this series the most, because otherwise, again, I just I just think the story is okay. But, you know, um, I was also thinking, like, I guess before we got to, like, the cliffhanger in Chapter 4, I was thinking, like, oh, well, they, they mention, or I guess Grimm mentions, like, all these other, like, different creatures that they're also, like, hunting or whatever, like... I kind of thought it would be cool if, like, oh, uh, what if, like, what if, like, Valu isn't, like, our main character? What if, like, we go from village to village hunting these, like, different creatures and maybe we'll follow uh, Grimm in particular as she, like, meets up with these different characters? That's kind of, th- that's kind of, like, where I thought the series would go eventually, but, it, I mean, I- I'm probably going to be wrong about that. And it's looking like Valu is going to be, like, our main character, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing where the next chapter will go when we get to it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Despite our criticisms with the story, like, I still think this is a fun comic, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and I, I really don't want to, like, keep going on and on about the art, because, like, I feel like I'm just going to say the same thing. But it is, like, I, honestly, I am kind of in awe of some of these. Like, here, so my favorite page from this comic so far is in Chapter 2, where basically you have the two werewolves... Uh, attacking the village, or at least the, like the dumber one attacking the village, while the other one uh, basically is in disguise in the crowd. And uh, you have the bigger werewolf attacking uh, the bell tower, and then uh, Grim comes in and just whacks him on the head with the bell. 
that is that that two page spread honestly is stunning like yeah. like you can you can feel the impact and the sound effect works in this uh the sound effects in this series look amazing too oh yeah i mean that's gonna be hell to re-letter <laughs> but man it's striking the way that the sound effects are all shooken up by that too because like they, they reverberate yeah impact. yeah that's pretty awesome oh my god yeah and i like like i i don't know it's like w- when i'm noticing the sound effects like man and like i just i just love the way like when things explode or when something happens like the sound effects are kind of cracked to show the impact like that level of detail is so amazing to me and i love seeing stuff yeah. like that so like again I, like the art is going to i think is going to be the best thing about the series like i'm i'm willing to wait and see like where the story goes and like how it develops cuz i you know like you said, it, it like I, I feel like it's certain story beats are kind of like uh, when I see certain things happen, I'm just like, oh yeah, I've seen this happen in other stuff before. And and honestly, you brought up uh, you know Valu being like he's treating his werewolf brother like he's nothing or whatever, even though he's family or whatever. And I'm kind of on Grim's side a little bit, honestly, where it's just like, dude, they're both werewolves. They were gonna kill each other. Why'd you stop it? Like I'm 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 kind of on her side a little bit. Yeah, see that's the problem. See, that's <laughs> the problem with the series is that it didn't set up like enough of a compelling point of like why we should care about the other werewolf and the fact that he was betrayed. Like that's just what I'm talking about with the comparison to Demon Slayer, how it developed demons in that series. I mean early on perhaps like some of those minor demons didn't have a lot of depth to them. But yeah, like, the thing is, like, if you're going to make this point that, hey, these characters are once human, so they deserve kind of the same respect that, you know, you would give to humans and that same consideration for their lives, then you got to do the work to, like, develop them and humanize them mm. in, a, in a sympathetic way, even if they are despicable in their actions. If you want to draw the point that we are supposed to sympathize with how far they've fallen into becoming these monsters and, like, we need to understand, like, what kind of person they were before. Like, we need to understand, like, their sense of humanity, where that used to be and how they have lost their way. So maybe that's something they'll develop better as they go forward. But again, yeah, they kind of missed a mark here. Like, I feel bad for the other werewolf just in the sense that, you know, he did trust the other guy and he did seem like kind of the the lovable, a little dim-witted one. So you kind of feel bad for him, I guess, in that way, but it isn't strong enough. Like, yeah, sure, he's kind of, he was like, you know, clearly the less mean of the two werewolves in the sense, but he was still gonna <laughs> gleefully eat all the villagers. So you didn't, you didn't establish like a point of humanization or even a relationship between Bellu and that werewolf at that point. His first interaction, his first seeing that werewolf is like when it's defeated and when that other werewolf is about to destroy it. So you're like, he doesn't even understand the guy's personality. Only we, the audience do. So it's, you know. Yeah. See, that's why I was wondering like, Oh, is Grimm going to be the focal character? Because like, I almost wondered like, Oh, is this the point that like Valu is the like more naive one or whatever? Like, are we so, yeah, I, I genuinely wasn't sure if we were supposed to be on his side when he shows concern for the werewolf. Or yeah. Not. I think we are supposed to be cause you know, him as a protagonist, like, we are supposed to identify with his sense of kind of moral uprightness and earnestness. And, yeah. And, like, that's supposed to contrast with Grimm being, like, who develops that same kind of respect he does. Or at least comes to respect that he feels that way. Yeah. As a mentor figure. But, 
Yeah, I mean, I do also feel that Grimm, you could probably just do this series with her as a protagonist. I think even though we don't know that much about her yet, just in terms of design and just in terms of, like, charisma, she has more than Velo. So even, like, if she isn't as developed even as Velo at this point, like, I feel like she could have carried the series. But, you know, we'll see. I kind of wonder if maybe this will be, like, a Claymore thing where, like, Claire was kind of the main character while you kind of had that like one kid hanging around her or whatever. I I kind of thought maybe like we'll see, yeah. but so far the perspective is just so much centered on Velo. I guess so, so. Yeah, I feel like they are positioning him as the focal of the story. Uh, I guess just also to talk about pages that we like in chapter three. I do again to comment on the greatness of Kawaguchi's paneling like the double page spread from 6-7 is so so good with the werewolf turning like we have these panels in the right hand column of him turning his head as he's transforming and then we have in right in the center just the appear his appearance after he's transformed and the sound effect is swirling around him which again it's going to be held every letter but <laughs> man it looks cool just to see the thumbs like swirl around his body and then yeah it's just such a good composition and this is just the the series is full of like really cool paneling sequences, compositions like that that really accentuate the beats in the story and especially in the action. Like later in the same chapter where like the werewolf is like ripping apart his own body so he can like trigger his big transformation and whatnot. He kind of looks like because uh, I was wondering like, oh, what does he look like? It looks familiar. And he kind of looks like one of those GT robots from Toriko a little bit. Yeah, I guess uh, I can see it. Uh, there's also some interesting moments of comedy in this series, like in the fourth chapter, where, like, you know, when they're giving all this uh, lesson about the bullets they use to fight the werewolves. And oh, we boy. have, like, this fantasy sequence of, like, the werewolf in the classroom and fellow was, I mean, uh, Grimm is, like, a teacher. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a strange, like, out-of-world moment, but it's, I appreciate kind of that sense of humor, too. So I, I think artistically, I think creatively, this series has a lot of fun ideas and it's drawn extremely well. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I think that, uh, again, storytelling-wise, it could do a in needs to just find that hook. It just needs to find that really strong emotional core beat that's going to drive the story. Yeah, I'm hoping that'll come with chapter five. I'm kind of hoping that's where we'll see it, because again, it it really feels like we're leading up to this entire village or hamlet or whatever being just like massacred. And I'm I'm hoping maybe we can find that emotional hook by then. If not, then I don't know when, honestly. Um, so you were talking about comedy. Uh, I, I really like at the end of that sequence you were mentioning how like she brings out her uh, she brings out her her rifle and uh, she's about to shoot it and then the wolf just kind of like grabs it yeah. and bends it. That I, I thought that was a little funny moment right there. Um, two things I want to mention before we like completely move on because I, I made note of these because they just kind of bewildered me a little bit. And this first one, you could say like, oh well, like the wolf is kind of being cocky and maybe you can kind of like. Uh, maybe you can kind of use that as defense, but, like, I kind of thought it was dumb how he just, like, revealed their weakness a little bit, you know? I was just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I don't know. I, I just thought that was kind of dumb, where, he, where he's literally yeah. like, oh, yeah. Y- I like, mean, it's yeah. so expository, necessarily. <laughs> like, the idea is that he's trying to kind of psych them out, because, like, he is uh, explaining to them, hey, you know, because of the way our bodies work, 
by taking more and more damage, we can basically trigger like these giant transformations become even stronger. So you have no chance of beating me because I'm just gonna no matter what damage you do to me, I'm just gonna heal and get stronger and stronger. And oh, look at okay, my, okay, my self inflicted damage, and now I've become this big hulking four and all like that. So okay, like we get it. He's arrogant and he wants to toy with them by basically uh, mocking their inability and the futility of fighting him. But, you know, yeah. he hoists his own retard there. Yeah, exactly. So you, you could kind of you can kind of argue that a little bit. But uh, also the other thing that kind of just like that that just kind of bewildered me. I, I really do. I do like that sequence where she's kind of like a teacher and he's like kind of taking notes or whatever. That is a funny moment. But I, I really like how... <laughs> I really like how she, when she's explaining, like, what could kill a werewolf, and the werewolf was like, oh, yeah, of course, silver bullets, that makes sense. And then Grimm is literally like, no, actually, we have to use Wolfonium. <laughs> yeah, such a ridiculous name. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, they're probably being ridiculous for the sake of it. Like, I'm sure, right. I'm sure that's on purpose. But, like, I just, I just love how, like, they take these, like, ideas from, like, Western folklore about how you kill werewolves and everything, and at first you're led to believe, like, no, yeah, silver bullets. Like, everybody knows that's how you kill a werewolf. And then they just take it a step further and just invent an totally new thing that you have to use in order to kill werewolves. Because the werewolves in this series are, like, just that powerful. Um, I just love the escalation in that. I just thought that was pretty great. It 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 kind of baffled me a little bit. I was just kind of like, oh, okay, we took this, like, a step further. I was not expecting that. Um, but, yeah, so far, like I said, um, again... The art is the best thing about this series. Like, if you if you want some really good stylized art uh, that's really well drawn, characters are designed super well, super memorable. You'll definitely want to check this out. Again, jury's kind of out on like how the story's gonna end up and like how this like I guess first arc of the story is gonna end. Again, I'm I'm really interested in seeing where this goes because I again while I don't think the story beats are like necessarily all that emotionally gripping maybe even like a little rote in some places like i still i still want to see where this goes like i i think this could get better yeah i think this has potential and i hope it meets it i think that what'll carry it right now is the art and the fact that it seems that grim has become this wary meme fan art character already like so i think i think that buzz around it or like that early enthusiasm can carry it but it does need to keep that interest and momentum going forward by telling some more compelling stories i think and i hope it will do that and we will see but you know we all have also seen in the past you know series that have like a character that is very you know readily glomped onto even with that sometimes they just don't find the momentum to last because i tell c was also like that because ioa was also a similar character in that way maybe not to the extent of grim but i did see a lot of fan art a lot of enthusiasm about her but then that didn't help the series as it you know ended up not lasting a while so uh you know I think that the sooner that Red Hood, you know, finds its hook and finds that kind of compelling core to it, I think uh, the better for it. Because mm-hmm. it's definitely the kind of thing that I think really wants to be an emotionally gripping story, but so far has just been kind of a solid action comic, you know? And that's 
that's not to say that's not like a you know a bad thing or whatever. I, we both like action comics uh, if they're done well, but yeah, it it really seems like there's supposed to be an emotional core there, and I don't know if that's really reached its potential yet, honestly. And I'm I'm hoping it does soon. Um, but yeah, I despite all their criticisms, I would still like give this a huge recommendation. Like, I might be calling it kind of soon, but like Yuki Kawaguchi might become one of my favorite artists, honestly, just on this alone. Like, I'm actually like, I don't want to sound hyperbolic or anything. I don't, or I don't want to blow smoke, but like, uh, I'm, I'm genuinely like really impressed with like how well drawn and everything that these first four chapters are. It, it, it's kind of, it's kind of blowing me away, honestly. Like, e- even if this series somehow doesn't do very well, I'm probably going to be following their works from here on in, honestly. Yeah, again, I think there are creator and artists with a lot of potential, and I hope that they meet it. Mm-hmm, for sure. But now I guess we can move on to uh, Nehru, Way of the Martial Artist, if you want to tell everybody what that series is about. Yeah, so Nehru is about the eponymous Nehru. He is basically, as the title suggests, a martial artist. I mean, he has trained with his grandpa ever since he was young. The thing about him is that his grandpa, you know, he used to recite, like, all these, like, martial arts techniques from, like, this book that they had. But uh, his grandpa couldn't read. So what he did is, like, he acted it out. And then what, like, Nero did is that he would kind of draw the poses just still around him to, like, kind of learn and remember the techniques and then emulate them that way. Basically, at the beginning of the story, like... You know, Nehru kind of beats up some bullies in front of this girl. And so he leaves his book behind when he does that accidentally. But she picks it up and she takes an interest in him. She, she kind of asks his friend about, like, his story. And then he she goes to visit his house. And then she realizes, okay, yeah, this kid is a genuine martial artist. So she approaches him and they get into kind of a play fight because she recites kind of one of the stories in his book. And so they kind of bond over this like fight. And then after that, she basically invites him to join her in going to this martial arts school. So he does that and he gets into a fight with her brother there. And he is very impressed by the fight. Like, he picks up on the guy's fighting technique, like, very quickly. Like, the guy uh, fights with a spear and whatnot. But he's able to emulate his moves. And then he's able to hold his own, fighting him off with a sword. Ultimately, he does lose. But he's, like, so impressed by the experience that he's like, Man, I want to go here at a martial artist. I want to improve my skills at this school and fight this guy again. And so that's the driving point of the story is that Nehru wants to go to the school. So he has to pass the test to get into the school. And then, yeah, I guess he'll train here in all these different ways of martial arts. Yeah, so I don't know how I feel about this series so far because um, I feel like, mm, how do I put this? I, I feel like the series has like the opposite issue that Hunter's Guild does where like, Clearly, Hunter's Guild is trying to go for some kind of, like, emotional, like, has some kind of emotional core there, but hasn't really, like, used it as much as it should, or it has really, like, uh, explored it as much as much as it should. But I feel like there's a good emotional core here, with Nehru being this kid who's, like, really, really, really into martial arts, and just wants to get better at, at his martial arts. 
but like that kind of uh, makes him an outcast from like everybody in normal society where like, you know, th- that's kind of the only thing he's about. That's like what he's the most passionate about. But he kind of has this pressure on him to like kind of conform. That really isn't brought up at all in this chapter. Like that would have been a compelling point, but it doesn't seem like the martial arts, like his obsession with that, he really affects him in the social alienation in any way, or at least he doesn't care about it. Like he has a friend and he all he cares about is just going martial arts. I guess. I, I, I feel like it's implied that like he that he feels like an outcast. And I think But it's not his like thing, I guess. I don't I don't really I didn't doesn't really feel that way. I mean, the story just starts with him, like, rescuing the girl, and then he's just obsessed with finding the book. And then I guess, like, his friend tells her that, oh, he just is really just interested in martial arts and all that stuff. I don't think there really is anything that much about him being, like, upset that he doesn't really have a community. I mean, if they had drawn that point home harder, that would have been great, because the idea of this series, seemingly, is that Nero finds in Akebi and in this school, like, a community of fellow martial artists passionate about what he loves. But that doesn't seem to be, like, kind of the thing he was upset about at the beginning of the series. He doesn't really seem upset about anything at the series. Like, he's pretty single-minded. So there really isn't much of a compelling like hook or starting point for him he just kind of happens to interact with this girl who happens to take an interest in him and then that happens to lead him to something he's excited about and learning more about martial arts Mm, i don't know i i feel like uh, i don't know maybe i am reading too much into it admittedly but i don't know i i just maybe i felt like that because there's that bit where like he's kind of throwing that uh shuriken thing against the tree and like yeah i mean he is he is upset because he doesn't have people to fight with people who are also passionate the same thing that he is so he does feel alone in that way yeah i mean it's just it needs to draw that it needed to draw that point so much harder and especially with the relationship with the grandfather, like, yeah, like, obviously the grandfather is very important to him and he's kind of absent now, but I feel like we need to feel his sense of loneliness and loss of, like, not even having him around even stronger. Because it takes until the middle of the chapter for him to kind of vent that frustration. Like, at the start, it doesn't really come across that strong. Fair enough. Um, I will say, I, I think the first chapter is the best one where, like, I don't know. I guess whether it like executes its ideas and its emotional core is up for debate, but I at least like the direction and how the first chapter goes and where it is at least a little bit in my mind. It it is about kind of like sort of exploring like at least a little bit how Nehru feels about possibly maybe being an outcast from, you know, his peer group because he's so into martial arts and now suddenly you have this girl that comes out of nowhere and seemingly is somebody that maybe he could be friends with because she seemingly has the same kind of passion and is somebody that like he could kind of share that passion with. I, I at least like that idea as far as the first chapter goes. I, I think that was actually a good like I wasn't sure how I felt about it at first, but I at least I at least like how the first chapter kind of spends its time in just kind of helping Nehru basically find a community somewhere where he can just kind of like uh, explore his passion and just get better at it. Like, again, I, I think it's a good idea. And I I really like that idea personally. Again, uh, whether it'll execute it very well or like how much the series is like interested in exploring that idea, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Because otherwise, otherwise, I'm sitting here kind of wondering, like, like, I feel like it has a good idea. But again, I don't know if it's interested in being more than just a fun action series kind of thing. I don't know. 
Yeah, I do like the scene where they bond over reenacting the story as they're fighting. Like, I think that is a good idea to establish that point of like, hey, we're never making a connection with people. The problem is just the characterization series is so thin and like the yeah. depth of character is like pretty shallow so like what i was saying with like this idea of like naru being lonely or whatever and that being the idea of it like that really does not come across outside of that one scene in the middle of the chat first chapter like in the subsequent chapters it feels like it's totally kind of lost to the point where it's like okay well it doesn't really hit that oh this is what naru is so happy about to find at the school and that's what he wants to go here it doesn't really call back but it's just like oh man i really like the i think it's just really cool that all these guys are doing all these different martial arts and this guy's so strong i want to fight him again with that it's like okay sure but not but yeah i just i don't think it uh, has crafted like very interesting characters in terms of like their motivations and depth to them even i think red hood even though i also feel like velo isn't like the most compelling or like i don't feel his drive yet i still feel like i have a better sense of velo and grim in red hood than i do in narrow with uh narrow and especially any of the other characters like akebi and then her brother so far so yeah it really is falling flat on that the biggest thing in the series that is similar with red hood is that the art is very strong the action in the series is really good like mentioning that fight scene between Nero and akebi like the spread of like just showing them enacting the fight in the different poses and going through the different stages of the fight in the first chapter is super good like oh, yeah. when he's seeing like in her movements or in his movements like the different poses and techniques that he's drawn on the wall and like we are seeing like him going in and out of like him in those poses and then those poses themselves is like as the drawings like that's a great page like action wise that there's really strong uh, art in the series is really strong communication of like action beat and ideas so I think, like, just appreciating it for the art, for the action in that way, like, it can be fun. But, like, in terms of, like, the actual storytelling, uh, the characters, it has not done a whole lot to particularly interest me. And I just don't know if it is really going to stand out enough to interest a lot of people. Like, the, I mean, the martial arts, like, I think the art is good and that's what sells it. But it's not, like the most impression martial arts it's not the most impression action like compared to the other series currently running in jump right now it doesn't stand out that much it's just it stands out on its own so it's like you know i i wonder like whether this will hook people i feel like this doesn't seem like a series that is going to carry enough dry momentum without again a very strong emotional core to it or more fleshed out characters and i mean clock is ticking we'll see whether it can find that in the next couple chapters maybe when he joins the school we'll get more of a cast and maybe that'll help build characterization but right now we just gotta we need more than Nehru really likes martial arts and then he's really perceptive at martial arts and or we need to call back to the fact and like how much like he find he's so values now finding community in this group because again before outside of that one scene it does not seem that really informs or affects a lot of his actions in the story so far that that's fair. I I can I can see that. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I This is what I was kind of alluding to earlier. I, I think if either of these series are going to get axed quickly, I think it's going to probably be this one. Honestly, like, I hate to sound like, like I know the future or whatever, but like, this comes off to me as the kind of thing that's probably going to be canceled after two volumes. Like, I, I, I feel like this one isn't going to run for very long, which I really hate to say because like, I think there are things I like about this series so far, but like, uh, I was trying to find the word for it. I think you... I think you said it best. Like it is, it is unfortunately kind of shallow. Like I said, I I think it has a good idea in there. Again, I I want to see this kid, you know, uh, find friends and find this community that accepts him, so he doesn't feel like an outcast. Like I feel like that's a good emotional core there, and I really wanted to kind of like, um, I really want the series to hinge on that as much as possible. But I don't know if it's really. I I, I wonder if that's like kind of an afterthought. Honestly, like, I wonder if this is just going to be like a fun, fun martial arts kind of thing that's just kind of meant to be a fun martial arts thing and nothing less, you know, and nothing more. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm willing to wait and see where it goes. Like, I do want to give it a chance because, again, at the time of this recording, we're only like three chapters in and we had like one fight. And um, I don't know. I would like to see where it goes, but I don't know, depending on where it goes and how shallow it continues to be. I don't know. I can either take or leave this one, honestly. Like, I might give it another couple chapters, at least, like, maybe another volume or so before I decide whether I want to drop it or not. I'm I'm not as sure about keeping up with this one as I am with Hunter's Guild. Hunter's Guild, I know I'm going to probably keep up with at this point. Or at least there, there's a better chance of me keeping up with that week to week than there is this, honestly. But that's just me. Yeah, I keep up with everything regardless. But I will say the one that I'm most interested to keep reading is Red Hood. And I'm going to keep an eye on Narrow, but I'm not super enthusiastic about it. And I'm not super optimistic about, like, how it's going to progress. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm i hopeful. I'm hopeful it does, you know, find its way, find kind of a more compelling angle for its characters as it goes forward. I hope so, too. But yeah, I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about these jump starts unless like we just want to move on to the next thing. Yes, we can move on to the next one shot we're gonna talk about, which is the third chapter of Shokugeki no Sanji, coming out for One Piece's twenty-fourth anniversary, essentially. So this was a fun one. This is basically takes place at the end of the Alabaster arc. Everyone is being treated to the banquet. But because Luffy eats too much, you know, the chefs can't keep up. So Sanji basically kind of overhears the chefs talk about, like, how shorthanded they are because, like, the cavalry of cooks that they called in from the other towns haven't come in yet. So Sanji decides to go help out at the kitchen, help Terracotta out. And so, yeah, like, he acts as their stagiaire and he is able to very quickly keep up with and catch on and what the kitchen needs and he helps you know keep pace for them uh, until the cavalry chefs arrive and that's great and so the dinner goes off without a hitch but Tanji also has used his time in the kitchen in addition to helping out with all the cooking he prepared his own special dessert for Vivi which she really enjoys and makes her reflect upon all her fun memories with the Sarai crew on the adventure And that's very sweet. And then, you know, there's some playful ribbing and banter as they end the party. And then the next day, Sanji, you know, is thanked by Terracotta, who gives her him, like, uh, the palace's cookbook of recipes. 
And then he goes off on his way, and he leaves Alabasta, and he leaves the capital with, like, Tarkata and other chefs singing, man, what an incredible chef. So it's just a nice, fun little story of, like, Sanji just, you know, helping out this kitchen. Kind of reminds me of uh, a moment in that G8 arc where Sanji also helped out in the Marines' kitchen and whatnot. But it also brings back to mind, you know, especially since Sanji referenced himself as a stagiaire, it brings back to mind the stagiaire art of Food Wars. It yeah, definitely yeah. felt like the most Food Wars of chapters in terms of something Soma would do. But it also is so in line with Sanji, too, for, for him to do this. And it's really nice. And I really do like the uh, emotional beat it, ha- it has at the end of like Sanji has made this nice dessert for Vivi and then it makes her reflect on all the hard things but also makes her remember all the happy memories she had on her journey with her friends. And I really like that a lot. So it was a nice, cute little chapter. Yeah, I, th- I thought this was cute. I really liked it. I mean... It might just be because I have a lot of nostalgia for Alabasta because it's 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 one of my favorite sagas, arcs, whatever in, in One Piece. It's one of my favorite portions of the series. So I I was very surprised and very happy, like, oh, we're doing this. Yeah, I just it's just a wave of nostalgia just washed over me. It was it was kind of nice in that sense. Um I thought it was fun and cute, but I feel like out of all the chapters of Shokukeki no Sanji we've gotten so far, I'm gonna say I like this one more than the first chapter we got. But not as much as the second. I agree. No, the yeah, second yeah. had a stronger, like, emotional core with, with helping that fisherman's daughter's wedding. Yeah, you know, yeah. The bond between the father and daughter reflected in Sanji helping out. And also, of course, the relationship with Sanji and Zoro. And how Zoro, you know, lends Sanji his sword to, to oh, cut man. that fish. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, that had some stronger, like, character relationships, emotional beat stuff to it. But For sure, this yeah. Was nice and... Yeah, I also have so much fondness for Alabasta. So seeing just that, you know, spread of like Vivi just in her memories, you know, that definitely touched me. And I also like the ribbing Nami does to Sanji of like, oh, you didn't make one for me. And then that cluster Sanji and he says, oh, I'll make you one right now. But then Nami's like, nah, I, I, I'm so full. I could eat another bite. So and that's so cute. There's there's such cute, like, there are cute character interactions in this chapter that I really like that also makes me fond and miss early one piece and the early dynamic of the crew too yeah i mean look i'm i'm sorry if i sound like a broken record and i feel like i say this every time but like these are the dynamics in the crew that i miss the most like th- this just makes me miss early sanji where like he wasn't totally flanderized just yet and like sure he he was like a little pervy but he was never like intrusive or exploitative or whatever like he, he was just kind of a simp and, like, that's fine in small doses. Like, it's, like, in the earlier portions of One Piece, it's kind of cute how he fawns over Nami. Like, it's it's more of, like, a puppy love kind of thing. Like, you know, he's just kind of infatuated with her. It's a... It's 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 supposed to be like a fun, cute little bit of his character, and it, it was it was a little more endearing back then. And now that and now that's just his entire character is that he likes women and that he wants to peep on women, and it's just it gets tiring after a while, you know, when that, when that's his entire character. But but here here it's in like small doses, and it's like genuinely kind of cute, like you said when when Nami kind of ribs him, like, oh, you didn't make me any dessert, like that was cute. I want more of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I miss that thing about early One Piece and. Uh, again, I'll stop soon so I don't sound like a broken record. But it was again, it, this was a nice little story. It was cute. I, like you said, I really like how at the end it does emphasize like the journey they were on through Alabasta and Vivi's journey and whatnot. It was like, man, yeah, I remember going through Alabasta and man, again, like this, 
this this was like a nice punch of nostalgia, you know. This was this was just a nice read. And yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the inevitable Shokugeki no Sanji 4. Like I feel like at this point they're just going to do a few more chapters to maybe fill out like a volume possibly. Yeah, I definitely see that happening. I think that they'll just need one or two more and then they can release a volume of it. Yeah, yeah. Um I'm also wondering if they're still cuz I I I feel like I've read somewhere that like uh that there was interest in like animating these chapters at some point. I wonder if that's hmm. I wonder if anything's ever going to come of that possibly. It would be interesting. Yeah, I guess I'll see a OVA of this being made. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I don't know if we have anything else to say other than it it was fun. I liked it. It was nice. Yeah. Um but here now we're going to get to the big one. <laughs> Uh, the 142-paged one-shot from Tatsuki Fujimoto, author of uh, such hits as Chainsaw Man and and maybe to a lesser extent Fire Punch, but yeah, this was this was very unexpected. Like I think we knew that a one-shot was coming from Fujimoto, but like I don't know if either of us were expecting it to like get picked up or whatever. Well, I was expecting it to get picked up, but yeah, it was quite a surprise to see that. It was a nearly uh, full volume-length one-shot, but it makes sense for the story that Fujimoto told and the reason why he has told it this way. I, he clearly put a lot of passion and love into the story, as we'll get into. But essentially, the story of this follows the journey of like two artists, or the relationship between two artists. And so it starts off with this girl named Fujino, and in her fourth grade class, like she, you know, draws four-panel comic strips for her school newspaper that everyone enjoys. So, you know, she kind of has a big head as an artist. Like, she thinks, you know, she's really great. And, like, she doesn't take or think of art very seriously. And she basically is asked by a teacher, like, hey, there's this kind of kid who's, like, a shut-in who doesn't come to school, but they want to try their hand at making their own manga for the school paper. And so she kind of allows like one of her socks to be taken by this girl, other girl. And then she's, when that girl's strip is published, it's not really much a story strip like she's drawing. She's drawing like these gag comedy strips, but the other artist, Kiyomoto, she draws like these super really detailed high level backgrounds. And then when put into contrast with her strip and her kind of more scribbly art, that kind of makes her feel like, oh, her art isn't as good as this other girl's kind of, gives her kind of imposter syndrome. And that kind of motivates her, though. No, I don't want to let this other person be a better artist than me. So she goes to study her art and she devotes all her time in drawing and trying to improve her drawing skills. But as she grows older through elementary school, people stop being as receptive or encouraging of her drawing because there's the expectation that she has to grow out of it by the time she goes to middle school. And she's kind of becoming alienated from her friend group because she spends all her time drawing instead of hanging out with them. And so that's starting to wear on her, like her just struggling to get better and better, but everyone else telling her, hey, 
why are you still doing this? This is a childish thing. You should just give up on it. And by the time she reaches sixth grade, her art has improved some, but it's still just such a mile away from Kiyomoto's that she decides to just give up for basically the rest of the year. But when it comes to graduate sixth grade, like she is asked by her teacher to deliver the graduation certificate to Kiyomoto because they were both peers in the newspaper. And so she reluctantly does that. And when she goes there, you know, she sees that Kiyomoto has drawn so many uh, sketchbooks worth of art, like her life is art. And she sees kind of just a stray four panel strip like lying on the ground and she draws on it. And she like draws a strip like, you know, about asking Kimoto to come out of the room. But the joke is that Kimoto is like dead inside the room. And she accidentally like drops it and it slips under the door. And so as she's trying to leave, like Kimoto has read it and Kimoto like runs out after her and confesses to her that she was a huge fan of hers. Like she was a huge fan of her strip. It's what encouraged her to draw. And when she started growing as an artist, like Kimoto noticed that and that encouraged her and that made her want to try later too. And she really, really admires her. And she's really, was really sad that, you know, she stopped drawing. So in response to that, like Fujino kind of postures that, oh, I quit drawing because I wanted to do a manga award instead. And I wanted to, to stop the strip so I could take my art up a notch. And so Kimoto is like super excited about that and wants to see it. And so Fujino promises to show it to her. And from there on, they kind of form a friendship where... They, you know, start talking to each other about art. They start working on art together. They collaborate on their own one shot together and they submit it to Shueisha in while they're still in middle school. And it actually wins a manga contest or at least gets like a big honorable mention that earns them like a million yen as a prize. And so they go out and hang out together and they've really become close friends and throughout their rest of their school years like they continue to publish one shots and continue to uh, work on art and manga and hang out together and by the time they're about to graduate high school they're got an offer to get serialized in like <laughs> I guess we can zoom up and like that is really exciting to them but Kyomoto is like, hey, I don't want to work on the series. I want to go to art school. I really just want to get better in art. And so they kind of have a little bit of a falling out because obviously Fujino, you know, is upset that their, you know, friendship is kind of breaking apart and doesn't really want to see her go. But Kyomoto really is like just dedicated to being a better artist. So basically Fujino works on the series alone uh but then you know years later she overhears she on the television about like a uh, axe wielding like murderer at, who wreaked havoc at the art school that Kyomoto went to and you know unfortunately she was one of the victims and then you know she basically uh goes to her house to pay respects and she kind of regrets like ever ever like inviting Kimoto out of her room or like she, she regrets that because of what she did like she you know Kimoto ended up dying and so she kind of rips up the strip that she originally drew for Kimoto to get her out of the room and so then we get into kind of a fantasy sequence in which the idea is that 
Fujino is imagining like a, a fantasy circumstance in which she never formed a relationship or friendship with Kimoto when they were younger. But even then, like the idea is that Kimoto still would have gone to art school. But then somehow Fujino would have been there to stop the actually murderer and save her. And then they would have become friends from uh, there because, like, she would have recognized that Fujino drew the the same strip when they were in grade school. And then they would have become friends as adults instead of kids. But, you know, then she'd still be alive. But at the end of this fantasy sequence, like, we see Kiyomoto draw her own strip about Fujino being her hero, essentially. And that, you know, kind of falls under the door. And then... You know, in present, in the reality, we see Fujino find the strip and realize the way Kiyomoto taught of her. And then when she opens Kiyomoto's room, she sees that Kiyomoto always had remained her biggest fan because she bought all her books. She filled up every Shonen Sub survey and she kept like the book or the rather the jacket where they had written, she had written her name on it for Kiyomoto when they were kids. And so she's reflecting on, like, what drawing means to her. And she, at this point, is, was had been this illusion of the idea, what is drawing useful for? Do I even like it? But then, then in reminiscing about her memories with Kiyomoto and rereading her own work, she remembers that shared passion they had. She remembers that relationship, their shared love, and what encouraged them to become better, why they really love doing this, and why, what drove them to become better artists. And the bond that they shared. And that drives her, that motivates her to go back and even through all the grief she's feeling, even through that sense of regret and loss and despair, she goes back and she keeps working. She keeps on drawing and making art. So, I mean, as an artist, just so much of the series, so much of the experiences described by Fujino, especially in her younger years, really resonate home with me. I know it did with so many artists, I'm sure there's, but it's like so many conversations, so many of the feelings of like that sense of imposter syndrome, that sense of like inadequacy that Fujino feels, that, mo- that the motivation to get better and better, and just devoting all your time into your art, but then also having these external impressions tell you why are you even bothering and then feeling that sense of hopelessness, but then also that sense of people of encouragement and that making it happen and forming a bond of communities through your shared love of art and through creating art that is just so powerful and just so moving but then as the story progresses we get to kind of the real reason Fujimoto wrote this and the timing of this one shot makes so much sense too is that this story is also a huge metaphor and reflection on the Kyo Annie uh arson tragedy two years ago like this one shot was released on the two-year anniversary of that and all the details in the story of like the murder or like um especially with the way he's describing his like sense of of anger of like his ideas being ripped off that's exactly the motivation of the arsonist who caused the kyoani tragedy and so we realize and we come to understand, oh, this is from Fujimoto, a reflection of mourning for those victims, for the artists that were lost there. And like the fact that, you know, they had just such potential dreams that were just taken away like this. And like that sense of like what hopelessness you feel of of this tragedy, of what could have been done to prevent this, what 
you know, what is even the point of continuing on, but then reminding yourself of why you draw, why, you know, as an artist, you go into a creative field and like the way in which you want to honor the memories of those talented artists of like people in the art world. And so is to continue on drawing, continue on creating the art that you mutually, you know, believe in. And so it becomes like a great story of like, you know, regret and grief and processing that to continue pushing on forward. And even though it's hard, even though it's painful, even though sometimes it's difficult, like just holding on to like the communities you've built through the art you make and the passion you have for the craft or the medium, just continuing on forward, like just taking it another day, even if that sense of loss is hard to process, you know, just just continuing to push forward because at the end of the day, like that's really all you can do sometimes. And it's, it's very powerful. It's just a very touching piece to reflect on that tragedy as well as just to encapsulate just all the feelings of what it means to be an artist, what it means to create art, what it means to form community and relationships through the art you create and through the art you love and how that carries you forward through life, even through the most difficult times in your life, even through the most difficult times of creating art. And just as an artist, just continuing to hold on to what pushes you forward. So it just... It's a very powerful piece. It's extremely moving. Like I, man, it it just is like one of the most powerful and affecting musings on that idea of being an artist that I've read, and, and just the fact that Fujimoto also tied it into like this utter reflection on the Kyoani tragedy and processing that. It just adds another layer of a gut punch to it that just made it all the more powerful. Yeah, um, again, I don't know how much else I can kind of add to this, but like, and again, I, I don't want to come off like hyperbolic when I say this, but like, I genuinely think Tatsuki Fujimoto is a god tier mangaka. <laughs> Honestly, like, and full disclosure, I didn't really get to this one shot until like just before we had to record today. So I mostly, I've mostly seen like pages out of context because I remember when this came out, like, at the time of this recording, like, over a week ago at this point, like, you know, I remember seeing a lot of people tweet about it when it was out and really praising it and just seeing so many pages out of context. I think the one I saw the most was the one where when Fujino is first talking to Ayumu and she basically gives her praise for her art and that kind of, like, it kind of helps her decide to, like, keep going and she's, like, walking home from the rain to immediately go back to drawing like that page of her like kind of like dancing in the rain yeah. just euphoric that someone has acknowledged her art and just so happy just wordlessly just a great great way to communicate that mm-hmm. i kept seeing it out of context so like i i thought like she was like upset about something and i thought something like tragic happened but no it actually again it's like you said it's supposed to be like a happy moment like she finally feels like 
that kind of validation that like drive to like keep going again which is which is really nice because like i really like that beginning of the one shot where she is a kid and she basically is inspired to like improve on her drawing after like receiving so many like comments uh praise from her peer groups and whatnot and then finally when it gets to a point where it's like uh, one of the kids literally like oh well next to this person your art's not very good or whatever he said i forget um and you just see, like, uh, and I mean, th- this also goes into, like, why I love Tatsuki Fujimoto's stuff in particular, because I think I've said it before, but, like, Tatsuki Fujimoto is one of the only artists since Dragon Ball's debut in particular where I feel like his comics are just as readable as Toriyama's. Like, they're obviously, like, very different or whatever, and their, like, techniques are very different and stuff, but I feel like in terms of readability, like, his stuff is, like, some of the most readable in Jump right now. Um, I mean, I guess they're not running, but you know what I mean. Um, like, honestly, I was I was kind of afraid because, like, I knew I knew how long this one-shot was ahead of time, uh, and, I, I like, I read it right before we had to record today, so I was like, oh, man, is this gonna take me a long time? But I think I, I think it took me, like, 20 minutes, like, 20 to 30 minutes to get through it. Like, it's a pretty... Like, for how long it was, it was, like, it didn't take me that long to read. It's an art-driven one-shot. It's not terribly text-heavy. Most of the story is just told through the art itself. Yeah, So, it is a quick read, despite the length. But, I mean, I took my time with it because of how just affecting the Fujimoto's illustrations were. Oh, yeah. And just appreciating, like, the paneling, just the storytelling of it. It's just so so powerful uh, just so many great striking powerful visuals in this comic oh my god yeah i really like the way he kind of depicts like uh you know how much time kind of passes you know while fujino at first is like just constantly drawing and drawing and drawing and like you see how that like alienates her from like her friends and family and you know i feel so i feel so sorry for her especially when like her friend is literally like, oh, if you keep drawing or whatever, it's going to make you look like a creepy otaku. Like, who who, who draws nowadays? You're too old to draw, which, you know, I get their kids, so, like, they're going to say stupid shit like that. But I was just thinking. No, that's a very real thing. I mean, I'm sure it is, but it's also, like, so baffling to me that, like, people think that when, like, you know, people all over the world love manga and love reading it. You'd think that, but no, that's a very real comment. No, I'm sure. Again, it's it's just so baffling to me, like how people could think that. You know, it's just whatever. It, it it was very powerful because, like, even if it sounded baffling to me, like, oh, no one never actually says this. Like, I I agree with you. Like, that is that's still very real. Like, of course, people think that way. You know, but yeah, I I, I think the beginning portion of the one shot is my favorite. I mean, not not that I didn't like it like all the way through. It is very good, but I think that was the stuff that like kind of got to me the most, uh, personally. Just seeing them put so much time into their craft and then eventually just quietly in the middle of clash just go oh i give up like it's just such an understated moment but it like it really hits you so much and it's it's so great and also like i really like the way that one comic strip you were talking about kind of comes in with uh them trying to get ayu out of uh out of her room or whatever and then the last panel is like oh you end up finding her dead in the room i God, it's such a gut punch, like, how that's, like, recontextualized near the end, and, you know, after she eventually dies or whatever, like, man, that, that really hit me. I was like, oh, that's, 
I, I had to take a bit of a break. That was a bit much. Um, admittedly, I was a bit confused about, like, the second half of the one-shot because, like, obviously... I mean, not, not, now I know that, like, uh, a lot of the stuff that happens with uh, with Ayumu, like, you know, uh, ending up going to art college and then Fujino saving her with her karate or whatever. Like, I realize now that, like, that's her, like, thinking in her head, like, oh, how things would have gone differently had I done this differently or whatever, and maybe she'd still be alive. Like, I realize that's, like, all in her head now. That's, like, what she's thinking or whatever. She's thinking of different, like, scenarios. Um, yeah, I, I didn't realize that's what it was at first. I was kind of confused. So, like, I think that's mostly just on me. Like, I didn't get it at first. I kind of had to reread bits of it, but I, I got it eventually. Um, and, yeah, that I, I think the one-shot also ends on a really powerful note where, like, despite all the tragedy that's happened and despite her losing her friend uh, that she had been drawing manga with for years at that point, like she eventually has to get up and, you know, go back to her workplace and go back to drawing manga. You know, like that's, I, I saw that page tweeted out a lot and now I know the context behind it and like, oh man, yeah, that's, it's it's such a like powerfully depressing way to end that one shot. It's not depre- meant to be depressing. It's supposed to be like optimistic. It's supposed to be, you know, even in your grief, like sometimes you got to keep pushing forward. And the reason the thing that is pushing her forward is her memories or her, her relationship to Kiyomoto. It is like the shared bond that they have through their art. And by keeping going forward with her art, that is in her way her way to pay tribute to Kyomoto. Like she's thinking okay. what good is doing art anymore if it just led to this trap if like this led to this tragedy. And then she realizes no, there was so much value in the relationship we formed together, in the art that we created together, and in the art that I'm doing now that she still appreciated. Like up until her she was taken away like she was still her biggest fan and she realizes no there is value in the art that i create there is value continue forward for this and that's what pushes her forward that's what makes her get up and go back like that is what she's holding on to in her grief to push her forward it's just so powerfully done oh it's it's super great on a more uplifting note um shark kick I would definitely read that if that was a real comic, but then again, yeah, I'm I'm sure it's safe to assume that's supposed to be like. I mean, it's a it's allusion to Chainsaw Man, like the I, kind of the idea again, and the and the fact that this is a commentary also on the Kyoani tragedy, like Fujino is a stand-in for Fujimoto, yeah, and then Kyomoto is standing for Kyoani. So you know, it's Star Kick is also a reflection of just Chainsaw Man. But yeah, it also would be like this idea of like, hey, what if Bean was <laughs> there's a, a, a manga just about Bean? And I would like to read that. I would read that. Um, actually, I was gonna say, I at first I thought it was a standard for a uh, Fire Punch, actually. Um, but I I think either one could work. I mean, uh, it's it's probably more so Chainsaw Man, but F- Fire Punch was also was also one that I had seen other people also make comparisons to as well. But yeah, I, I was just gonna say like, I I was wondering like. How I mean, obviously Fujino is a standard for Fujimoto, so I wasn't entirely sure like how how much of this was autobiographical or how much of this like I don't know if a lot of I mean obviously like you mentioned like part of this being an allusion to the Kyoani arson or whatever, and that's 
and and that's obviously like an allusion to something that really happened but i was wondering outside of that like um i mean i'm sure a lot of the feelings like explored in this one shot are probably very real on fujimoto's part i would assume it's probably safe to assume i don't know it's it's definitely like it's also definitely a reflection of like maybe his feelings as an artist somehow like i don't know it's it's just kind of interesting to think about absolutely but yeah no i mean like I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about this, but I mean, like, just in general, holy shit, this was, like, going in, I knew it was going to be good, but, like, I didn't think it was going to be, like, this good, you know? Like, I'm kind of blown away. Just, I'm I'm going to follow Fujimoto for life. Like, holy shit, he's so good at what he does. I really want to read his next work. I really want Chainsaw Man Part 2 to come out soon. <laughs> I need it so bad. I really also need to get on Fire Punch. Admittedly, I've heard mixed things about Fire Punch. I don't know if it's like the most amazing thing ever or whatever, you know, but like, I still want to read it. I still want to give it a chance. Yeah. Fujimoto, if you're listening, you're amazing. I I also hope that like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be compiled in a volume soon, obviously, but like, I'm hoping it gets released in print here because honestly, I'd probably get it. Yeah, um, I think that this is a book that I love to have on my shelf even though you know it is available through the vault because again it speaks to just so many powerful feelings of what it means to be an artist to create art and then also to find perseverance through your grief to keep moving forward so it just touches on a lot of powerful emotions that resonate very much with me Mm -hmm. i could see why this got like i thought i saw somewhere that this got like two million views on jump plus or something Mm-hmm. Like it, it got. I know it got a lot of attention. I think it's very well deserved. Absolutely. Oh boy, but yeah, I think that's about it for all the silo pubs and one shots we have to talk about. I re- I really enjoyed reading a lot of these. Yeah, I mean, I think we started and ended with the strongest ones by a mile. But oh yeah, you know, I thought that Red Hood and Nero were interesting to talk about, like what's working, what's not working with those. And we'll see how they develop. And then I've just found the Shoku Kicking Sanji to be quite a delight. Just a nice, uh, nostalgic, sweet little story. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I guess uh, I guess until the next time we have to talk about more jump starts, um, Mom, I guess we should probably get into Community Shoutouts before we end the show. Yeah, so we started this show talking about the Best Worst Manga panel Colton did that usually is done in San Diego Comic Con, wasn't done this year, but... You know, San Diego Comic-Con was pretty recent at the time of this recording, and there are a lot of great panels that were made available VOD online, and there's so many. I have not gotten a chance to go through all the interesting ones yet, but there's so many. But there was a lot of that I did get to that I want to shout out. So I think first and foremost, the thing that is going to be like probably the biggest one to check out for, you know, if you're just a manga fan, the Manga Publishing Industry Roundtable panel. And this panel, we got basically representatives from all the big publishers. We got Kevin Hamrick from Viz, Mark DeVera from Yen, Leia Acker from Penguin Random House, basically Kadansha, Ed Chavez from Denpa, and Ivan Salazar for Kadansha. And it was moderated by Deb Alki, of course. And basically, yeah, like they basically discussed like how the industry is, like where they're seeing the trends going, you know, especially with the big sales from last year with. The, the supply chain problems like are they worried about whether there's we're in a position where there's going to be a crash like uh, they did a lot of interesting 
conversations uh, about like the state of the manga industry where they think the market is going they also mentioned what are the titles doing really well now and i was so happy to hear that a lot of queer manga titles are doing extremely well like i think they mentioned that for yet sasaki miyano of the alta is just doing so well for them and it's so awesome to hear it's so awesome to hear that backlog titles as well like uh that blue sky feeling didn't do like super great for Viz. I mean, it did okay for Viz when it, they originally published it, but nowadays it's like a book that's selling out. So it's so cool to see that like queer comics have just found like such a bigger audience now, and they're really selling competitively like one of like top sellers of like in general for these publishers. Like they mentioned, Dick Fight Island, of course, being a huge seller <laughs> as well as Given. So. He's being one of Viz's top sellers. It's just incredible. So that was really nice to see, like, what they're noticing about market trends in terms of, like, uh, queer manga and classic manga are doing really well now. They noted that Jose manga still is struggling a little bit to find an audience, but they're hopeful for that. They talk about, you know, that uh, they are finding a lot of encouragement in seeing manga become more of an accepted part of just mainstream pop culture to the fact that even art, the artists themselves are being acknowledged and household names by major publications like even though it was a tragic circumstance, the fact that Kentaro Mura had tributes written about him in NPR and stuff is pretty astonishing and shows how much of a long way that manga has become and being like significant, big mass media culture and where they see the future of that going. So it was a great conversation about the state of the manga industry from obviously people who know it very well, the best. So definitely check it out. Then I also, uh, some of these are manga necessary, but I really enjoy But I'm going to start one that it's anime related. And that's the Blade Runner 2049 panel. I was done with a bunch of the producers and staff from there. And yeah, I'm going to be very excited to see the show coming out in the fall. They talk about kind of the inspiration behind it, like why they made the decisions to go the CG route, like what the team they assembled together was, like kind of their expectations going into production, like how Blackout came together back when they made that for around when uh, the 2049 show came out. So yeah, like... Uh, the movie came out so yeah like I, I think it was a really great conversation about the show and it makes me very excited to see it because clearly like made by people passionate about Blade Runner passionate about making a really good looking show in that universe and I think from the trailer like uh, their efforts are paying off so I'm excited for that on more adult stream related panel stuff like the Tukum Brady panel is great you know Lisa Hannah Walt and like other folks involved in the production they were on there they talked just about like uh how season two has been going in terms of production like kind of some fun things uh, about like the making of the show like fun stuff they worked in there so that was really fun i also enjoy the teenage euthanasia panel that's like upcoming adult stream show in the fall and that was a cool one to learn about like it made me start with that show and like kind of how they got that off the ground in terms of like working basically through two eras. This is Greenleaf during when Lazo was still a tenure, but then they also had to produce the entire show like during the pandemic. So that was also fun to learn about. The American Dad uh, comic on Open Panel was really great because it, that was so interesting because 
they basically did it as like they showed you how an episode is in like three different steps in the production process. Like they they started Act One showing you just the table read, like showing all the actors read out the script over Zoom, and then they showed you the second act in animatic form, and then they showed you in third act in like first pass. Uh, rough color form so that was a super cool look at an episode of the show in different stages and i just love seeing that peek behind the curtain so that was super fun i definitely want definitely you should check out if you're a fan if you really want to see like how an anime show looks or like can come across in different stages of the production cycle then i also really love the jellystone panel i've been so excited for jellystone like it's finally out and I really want to get to watching it but I really love the panel they did you know Green Black talking about how they developed the show like their idea for reimagining the characters uh, voice actors even their takes on like how they approach doing different characters and like it's interesting because some of the actors were like you know I didn't necessarily grow up with these specific characters but it's just so cool to like be able to tell by parents that like hey I'm, I'm playing like a squidly dilly or jabber on them being so very excited about it and that was very fun to hear about and yeah just everything they talk about the show the clips they showed in that and then just the talking about like their approach to it like it just makes me so so excited for the show and now that's out i definitely gotta watch it and uh i also really love the great nord panel like i finally got to catch it up on the great nord recently and it is such a great show and I really like this panel, them going over, uh, like, how the show came about, and then developing it, and then also sneak peeks at what they've got coming up, like their musical episode, and then showing animatic from that, and then just kind of, like, some of the rough past stuff. Like, that was super cool to see, and that makes me super excited for the next season. So, really enjoyed that. And there are a bunch more panels, even Anime Monger ones related, that came out for SDCC that I haven't caught into yet, but I am planning to get around to. So when we check back in next, definitely I will share those then. But I do have a few more stray things to just shout out. So first, I want to give a shout out to Jeff, our good friend Jeff Ruberg. And he does this podcast, of course, Cole Poddigis. But he's also been doing recently video essays in addition to the podcast on the episodes so he did one recently for like the 57th episode where he not only talked about the episode he also addressed like kind of Taichi's characterization the new Digimon and how the new Digimon show is kind of emphasizing Taichi to the detriment of the other characters in the ensemble cast in a way that the original show avoided and also some other problems with Taichi's characterization and presence in the show so I really appreciated that analysis I thought that was really cool and I really like the way Jeff is structuring his videos in terms of like the way he approaches like reviewing the content and breaking down the story and what works and what doesn't work about it but I also really love like trivia sections at the end where he points out hey this is where this Digimon that appeared in this episode originated and that's really cool to learn about because some of these characters some of these Digimon didn't originally appear in a show but appeared in like tie-in merch and stuff and then they got brought into the show so I thought that was really cool and so even though I kind of had fallen off on the new Digimon I really enjoyed catching up on Jeff's videos about it and like I think they're super good super well produced so I definitely want to give them a shout out because I think they deserve a lot more views because they're really good pieces so definitely check that out and in terms of other great youtube videos that i want to shout out like johnny two shallows has been doing some great uh, video essays recently and 
I think there are so many in just the past week alone that I really love from them. But like their future all movies retrospective, like him and Tariq are currently on cartoons like hers doing future all movies, but he did a big retrospective on them. But that was really good. That assessed like the strengths, weaknesses of each of the movies very well. But he also has been doing like Great King the Kill and character analysis videos. So there's recent one on Bill and how he's actually, you know, you normally think of him as the most pathetic character, but you know, he is able to really explain well, like, hey, these are actually kind of the moments to show that Bill is actually one of the most selfless characters in the show, and, like, willing to make sacrifices for his friends, like, pretty kind of admirably. And I really like that. And then also some great South Park videos is, like, the recent one. And now analyzing, of course, the infamous season 15 kind of mid-season finale of, like, describing Matt and Trey's kind of disillusionment with the show as it was then. But then also how... Analyzing how that results in the turning point for South Park's show into the direction where it is now in terms of serialized stuff with the status quo always changing. So I really love Johnny's video analysis on adult animation and he's been just making the banner videos recently i want to promote that i also want to check back in on Tariq's uh videos on the peanut specials because i shouted them out before but you know they're consistently great and they also are not getting as enough uh, love as they probably should so definitely check that out because the recent one was really funny when they reviewed one of the specials where charlie brown was <laughs> like trying to uh, find a girl that he saw and fell in love with for a sight and so he and Linus go around just asking different girls until they find the right one but when they get to the end like Linus is just so smitten with the girl and like because she also has a blanket like he does and so Linus betrays Charlie Brown essentially and hangs up with the girl instead of him and that's just how the special ends with Charlie Brown just getting like shown up by his friend like instead forming connection with this girl he had a crush on <laughs> that was very funny and just the way Tariq like played that scene in terms of like he had a video call and just all his friends like reacting to that it was just so funny uh, so Tariq does amazing work analyzing these specials picking apart like what works about them and how they get to the heart of peanuts and how sometimes they can fall apart and I think you know they do. he's doing a consistently great job so I definitely want to recommend those to folks to check him out same yeah check it out i love Tariq's videos too and admittedly i, I need to get to that last video actually here pr probably when we're done recording but yeah th those videos have been super great yeah other great video that i really loved recently was the royal ocean film society's a retrospective of joe dante and kind of the fraught film productions he had with hollywood like, I, he makes a parallel, of course, you know, playing off Joe Dante's name with Dante's Inferno. So he structures it like Dante's Hell, Dante's Purgatory, and Dante's Paradise in terms of, like, different film productions and which you show, like, Dante kind of, you know, in the studio system making these different films that he was passionate about and different extremes of, like, where he was able to get away with what he wanted to and where he wasn't. So... Uh, obviously, the Dante's Hell part was his uh, production on Looney Tunes back in action and how that had a fraught production with a lot of studio interference, you know, kind of preventing him from making this movie he really wanted to make and that just being super fraught and kind of burning him out from Hollywood for a good while after that. But then, of course, the purgatory was this film Explorers, which was kind of like a more kid-oriented 
sci-fi film that was really interesting because it was also a film that was kind of a commentary on like how television pop culture is big shared language and this is expressed by like how the aliens the kids you know endeavor to meet in that film also just express themselves but through pop culture quotes and through their love of america of u.s television and in the end the the aliens they so wanted to meet turned out to be kids themselves who just stole a shit from their own parents so it's kind of really interesting film and then of course the the paradise is gremlins 2 which was just batshit crazy and allowed Dante to just fully explore all his interests but the common trend between all these films that the uh, video essayist manages to hit upon that was so great was that even in all these films even with the different levels of how difficult the production was Dante's exploring this idea of like our relationship with pop culture our relationship with television as a medium, mass media as a medium of communication, as a medium of like kind of the shared pop culture language. And I think that was a really cool uh, idea to hit upon that, hey, this is what this director was interested in in exploring his works. And you can see that reflected throughout all these works at different points of time, even in these different production situations. Like he's trying to get across like these criticisms of like American commercialism and then how that's intertwined with our relationship with mass media and yeah I really appreciated that analysis of his films because you know I think uh, those are all very interesting films and I appreciate like again that kind of retrospective on his uh, career in Hollywood but uh, then moving on to like other video essay I really like not really video essay but just a video I really liked was Gaijin Goomba in the Saturn Perspective series, you know, kind of reviewed this old 1970s documentary about Japan. And the thumbnail was kind of misleading because it's like cringing to 1970s documentary about Japan, but they didn't do a lot of cringing. Like in the actual video itself, like they kind of stopped and like asked themselves like, hey, is this really accurate? And then more often than not, they were like, oh, well, actually, you know, for that point in time, maybe, or maybe they're exaggerating a little bit. Like, I think the only time they really cringe was when the obviously stage scene when they showed a girl, like, going to bed while still dressed in a Komodo. And that was obviously, no, you obviously don't go to bed dressed that way, especially with, like, the knot at your back, like... No one sleeps like this. So I think that's the only like really part where they like had a super like cringy. What is this reaction? This is not representing any reality. But the rest of it was actually interesting. It was actually interesting to go through this documentary, which actually had some interesting points to make about Japan in the 1970s. And then their commentary about it, like if that is still relevant, if like these observations about Japan back in the 70s are still relevant, like 50 years later, essentially. So I think that was really cool. And now I just want to close off by mentioning some podcasts. So I also mentioned this before, but recently the Nin Show has completed their Dragon Ball manga reads through retrospective. And it was a really great conversation. They were pretty enthusiastic about it all the way through. And yeah, it was good to hear their thoughts on it. And now they've started up Super. Like their 100th episode of the Nin Show was the first episode on Dragon Ball Super. And they ended up enjoying that more than expected too. And had a really good conversation on the future Trunks arc in particular. What they found like surprisingly enjoyable about it. Reading it in the manga without any really knowledge about the anime version of it at all. And then also why like the 
universe six arc and the battle gods parts like fell so flat for them in the manga too so i thought that was a really great i guess in general you know congrats to 100 episodes of the den show like i've been enjoying that since pretty much day one and uh cool to see them come that far and uh continuing forward and then finally in far pack has wrapped up so i've uh, i've got a i've got a shout out the tonight faithful podcast we talked about his bandos which broke CJ when V-Lord royally <laughs> uh, brought out the podcast with a bang by his first choice mentioning was Jelly Jiggler. And he talked about all the ways Jelly Jiggler was like surprisingly sexy for him. And that <laughs> broke CJ and baffled him just so much and he couldn't regain his composure for the rest of the podcast, especially because Celia Laser also joined in on <laughs> bullying CJ but also chiming in on all the ways Jelly is attractive and also... Oh, Laser had such a good joke. Once you go blue, then who? Like, God. <laughs> it just really, it was just so funny. Just the entire time. Just seeing CJ just baffled and just completely taken aback throughout the entire thing. And just, and there were also utter surprises in terms of takes people mentioned. It also took CJ aback. Like when Wheeler also mentioned Kira as one of his bound up picks. And that also true CJ for a loop. So, Man, that that was a lot of fun to listen to. So you gotta, I have to shout that out. That was so funny. So yeah, definitely look into that. I mean, look, that's in my podcast queue. I'll probably listen to it tomorrow while I'm at work. Um, I mean, look, I can't disagree with V Lord. Jelly Jiggler is voiced by Jameson Price. I don't know how you don't pick him, honestly. Not with this. <laughs> not not with that voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there have been so many. Yeah, that was such a funny podcast. One of the funniest pods I've listened to in a while. So definitely check that out. That was so so good. And then I think I shouted out the wife used one before, but that that's also fun. But like this has bond this podcast is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> just CJ just baffled throughout the whole thing. <laughs> it's just so funny. Uh. But that is it for my shout-outs for this time. There's a lot of stuff that's come out recently that I've been meaning to get around to. Like, there's still San Diego Comic-Con panels I've been wanting to watch. And then there's a lot of other stuff that people have been putting out that I still need to check out. And I'll definitely continue to catch up on that and shout that out next time. But for now, I think I left you with some good things to check out. A lot of cool things to check out. And, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of other cool things we've got in store in the future, too. So look forward to all of that. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited, but uh, until then, this was a fun episode, and yeah, I think we could just end the show there, go ahead and uh, let you guys know where you could find us and all of our stuff. Uh, Lum, why don't you go first? You can find me at LumRamiyasha on Twitter, it's LumRamiyasha, a variety of places like Amateur Revelation and Anglist, wrote it at LumRamiyasha, that's where you can find me, you can still find me on all.com, writing reviews of manga, and we've got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so... Look forward to more on there. And you can also find all the Tacoma.com, all the other podcasts I do, including my roots and movies, the show where we talk about anime movies primarily, and Lump Squad, the show dedicated to discussing the wonderful wacky world of Rumka Hashi's Yurusei Yatsura. We've been having a blast catching up on recent releases of the manga, as well as the movies, not that around Country Roll. And we've got a lot of exciting episodes in the works that you should look forward to. So look forward to more of that and more Yurusei Yatsura chatter. But, yeah, and you can also follow uh, Lump Squad basically on every podcast platform you can think of. Like, we're on there, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, the like. And it's also in the Monarchs feed itself whenever new episodes are posted. And also you can follow us on Twitter at Lump underscore Squad. 
But if you enjoy the art I do, the art I make for the podcast, the art I make in general, animations, illustrations, and the like, you can find that on my Instagram at setartworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few of my own podcasts as well, uh, which you can find links to over at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. That's basically my personal blog for whenever I feel like posting stuff or whatever. But basically, it's also the place where you can find pretty much whatever I'm producing and hosting as far as podcasts go. I have a page dedicated to basically whatever podcasts I'm doing at the moment, the even stuff I've done in the past as far as like maybe other defunct shows or like guest spots and other shows and the like. Uh, basically, you can find all my podcast stuff, again, at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for the podcast and everything else, uh, you can find every episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast over at allcomic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, if you sign up for that tier in particular, you basically have the chance to listen to early select editions of the podcast. Uh, basically, if we happen to have them edited early, say we happen to have an episode edited early, you know, before it's supposed to come out on the main feed. If that happens, we'll put it up on the Patreon first for you guys to listen to first. Uh, admittedly, again, that's uh, that's kind of depending on our schedule and everything and how much we have edited at any given time. So basically, if you want a more like uh, consistent feed of uh, of actual new exclusive content, you want to sign up for a $5 tier, where basically at the end of every month, you're guaranteed one new bonus podcast at the end of every month. I mentioned it last time, but the newest bonus podcast we have uploaded is actually a podcast that uh, Lum V-Lord and Sakaki and I all recorded in the same room while we were uh, kind of hanging out together in my hometown of St. Louis. And uh, we basically talked about everything we kind of done over the weekend up to that point, and also talk about our thoughts on Dragon Ball Evolution as we uh, as we made Sakaki sit down and watch that for the first time, and made him suffer. It was very fun, uh, and yeah, that's up now, and actually is up for all patrons. Even if you're subscribed to our Patreon for for as low as a dollar, you'll still have access to it. I definitely recommend go checking it out. Uh, we had a fun conversation about Dragon Ball Evolution and just 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 had a fun time recording together in general. And yeah, it was a, it's a fun podcast. So you should go listen to that once you become a patron of ours again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. If you sign up for that, it's really the best way for you guys to support the show and everything we do here. It helps us keep the lights on and everything and just it helps us do cool stuff like that, you know. So basically any support that you throw our Patreon is most appreciated. And yeah, we uh we, we just we just appreciate it. Uh, but as for everything else, you could find us on Facebook.com slash all.comic or on Twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us at manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we have different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, please subscribe to us there or email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Um, do you have any thoughts on any of the simul pubs and one shots we talked about on this episode? Do you want to tell us about anything you're reading at the moment or anything you want us to like talk about on the show? Uh, email us anything about manga or the podcast or really anything and we'll read it on the show we love getting emails from you guys uh again that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com send us an email but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe rate and review us on apple Podcasts or basically wherever you like listen to podcasts we're we're on a bunch of different platforms at this point 
but especially on Apple Podcast, uh, we would really appreciate it if you guys leave us a rating and a review. Um, it really helps the visibility of our show, helps us get out there to more listeners. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys. Uh, we also take any feedback we get super seriously because we try to use that to help make the show that much better. So, again, we appreciate any feedback you guys leave us. But that's going to be about it for the show. This has been episode 169 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 170. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.